Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Hamilton continues to see an increase in COVID-19 cases, but school has been pretty good. We'll give you an update. Many studies are coming out on how COVID-19 has affected our mental health and how it will in the future. We talk about the challenges. We'll talk about the weed charity scandal in Canada and politics in the United States as well. Will there be a debate? Stay tuned. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. After three days of turkey leftovers, I'm designing a new mask that covers the other end. At this time, I feel like that is the bigger threat in our house. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. I don't know. Is that directed at me? Is he, call, is he pointing his finger at me? Don't be pointing your glove at me. Uh, week number 31 edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. And truly, this is a home show uh, this, uh, today. Man, I think the next step for Will and I is to get a couple of tin cans and some string just to keep this thing uh, up and running. Uh, we're touching the tops of the trees, but don't you worry. We're going to pull up uh, any second now. Uh, as, you, as you're probably aware, uh, power outage in the hammer, and it's affecting us in bizarre technical ways uh, as we uh, try to bring you the show in this new uh, COVID-19 world. So hopefully uh, up and running and, and back to normal, and you can hear me a little bit more clearly than on the phone. Uh, once uh, we get into the show, perhaps after the uh, Premier's press conference. All right, uh, Hamilton continues to see an increase in COVID-19 cases, as we do, of course, right the way across the country. And we've uh, also heard more about it uh, actually getting into uh, the schools and such. Let's bring in Manny Figurito, Director of Education at the hamilton Wentworth District School Board, and he is with us now. Manny, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thank you for having me. So, obviously, a, a very difficult time for you and the staff and everything uh, that you had to go through. Uh, that being said, where you are right now, how are you feeling about, uh, obviously, we're seeing a tick in up, uh, an uptick in cases. We'll talk about that in, in, in just a second. But your thoughts on how this has all come together and, uh, and move forward since the start of school, Manny? Scott, I have to say, um, you know, being an optimist, I'm pleased with how staff have stepped up. As you know, yeah. in August when we got the direction, it, it was challenging, right? It, it's a new paradigm. And uh, But, you know, I just visited the North Francis Henderson School that we just opened up, and, and I'm seeing the students so just thrilled to be in school. And was I worried? Yes. I was worried about these new safety measures, the protocols, the, the masking, the hand sanitizing, the physical distancing. Because, like, like I said before, schools are anti-social distancing. We're set up to be yeah. social because learning is social. But the students have adapted. Uh, yes, there's been some challenges along the way. Um, but every time I, I might feel a little bit overwhelmed, I go visit a school and remind myself, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. So, uh, safety is a priority, um, but child development is so important, right? So how do we keep the, the, that 
safety first, but also support our, our development of our children every day. You know, you bring up a valid point, Manny. I've got a son in grade eight, and because he has broken his leg yeah, during a pandemic, uh, I had to pick him up after school. And you, again, you can just see the enthusiasm in the school. The kids are all masked up. They're playing along with they, you know, and doing what they have to do. But you can still see that enthusiasm there, and it is energizing, and it's great to see. And again, congratulations and kudos to you and, and all the educators that have worked so hard to, to get us where we are today, and, and obviously challenges still presenting themselves. So give us a bit of update of what's happening in the schools and, and, and how you're coping with it. Yeah, just an update. As, as, you, as you probably know, there's been um, uh, cases that have occurred, um, working hard with public health, and, you know, gained some great insight and respect to what this contact tracing is all about. Uh, thanking our principals and teachers, as you know, we've had uh, nine um, positive cases of students, um, out of 40,000 who are actually in person, and we've had four uh, staff. Yeah. But, um, what I've learned about this is that the importance of contact tracing, having class lists, um, the investigation follow-up that public health does after the fact, and how important communication is at such a time, because um, when parents need to know, what does this mean if there's been a positive case in my school? What, is this, what does this mean? Am I direct contact, casual contact? So that's been a huge learning, but we're thankful for the expertise of public health. And another one has been, um, as we know, we're, we're just going to another transition of parents who are choosing in our elementary full remote or in person. And um, we were about 8,800 uh, students who parents said we want full remote. Uh, so staffing and setting that up it was a big undertaking, but we did learn from last spring when we had to go full remote. We learned around standardizing tools and, and deploying our devices. But we're in another transition period, um, and uh, we'll be making our data public October 26th because we gave parents another opportunity. Uh, we'll make the change November 3rd if they now want to to make a change. In other words, now I want to go in person or I did in person, I want to go full remote. We're going to provide that opportunity in November 3rd because then we have to redeploy our resources, uh, um, which is our, our staff complement to make sure we're in line. So that's a big undertaking and we typically don't do that twice a year. We did that in August and now we're doing that again um, uh, to, to try to respect parent choice. And obviously, man, you, you're, you know, everyone has to be incredibly nimble here and adjust because it is a fluid story. I mean, this all, could all change one month from now. Oh, you're absolutely right. And we, we, meet, every, uh, uh, we meet every week with uh, public health, uh, both boards. Um, they actually meet quite, quite more often with uh, my team. So I meet once a week just to see the data. What are the metrics in the city and where are the low, you know, moderate high risks? and understanding that. So we have to be fluid. And, and the ministry has also told us that we need to be prepared for all three scenarios, whether, as you know, we're in our secondary schools, we're adaptive model, which means students come every other day. Elementary, they come uh, every day, but they you know, can choose remote as well. But they reminded us that if the numbers do change, that we have to be ready and, you know, and do a better job than we did last March when we suddenly, under the mystery order closed, but be prepared to be in the other scenario, which is every student uh, full remote. And, and we've been doing that planning behind the scenes with our virtual platforms and classrooms. So we have to be ready for that. 
Obviously, if we backtrack to the beginning of September and, and post Labor Day, everybody was incredibly anxious. You know, here we are, we're starting to see numbers creep up, and we're taking this chance, even though we all know after being out six months how the kids need to get back into that social interaction. Uh, you know, obviously, the beginning of school starts, and we remember the anxiety back then as the numbers were starting to tick up. You must feel pretty confident that, as you just said, even the numbers that you're giving now, uh, everybody, everybody seems to be doing pretty well due to all the hard work that uh, that you uh, you people have done to keep the kids safe in this controlled environment. But as you look back to the beginning of September and where we are now, uh, the middle of October, uh, what is your feeling about how how you adapted and got into this and the success that you are having here? Yeah, listen, um, leading under a crisis. Uh, really pushes us uh, in terms of our, of our skills. So what I've learned through this was um, stay close to people. Relationships with people are key. Your staff uh, um, are vital. They're the frontline people. And over-communicate. Uh, two, I also learned that you, we have to be agile. So what we've become accustomed to and what's been typical and predictable is not. So we need to be agile and be be ready to make changes as new information emerges. And last but not least is our customers. What are our customers, uh, our students and parents telling us? Mm. We did a thought exchange in the, in the spring, and we're launching this week another thought exchange to hear from parents. It's a feedback loop. What's working well? What's not working well? Uh, it's important to hear along the way, and sometimes you're going to hear things you don't want to hear, but that's okay. That's new information that we need to uh, to to hear from from our, our customers, and that's our students and our parents, and and um, so I, I am proud. And but I also know that we can't be complacent, right? We have to ensure that these measures we're putting in place that we stay consistent with them. And you know, I've been talking to um, friends in the health sector, and they reminded me that it took two to three months for the for some of the hospitals to adjust to some of those norms, mm-hmm. and they remind me to be consistent with them. And also, when I when I actually feel, um, Scott, one of the safest places I feel is when I'm actually visiting schools, mm. because I see everyone with hand sanitizers. I see everyone practicing physical distancing. I see students with and staff with masks, and then I see staff who wear the visors, uh, the face shield when they are working very close to kids in proximity as an extra measure. And um, so, what I'm learning through this is is that some of the cases that are that are occurring in our community are coming into our schools and are not necessarily, you know, occurring in the schools. So, um, and I think I heard you say before this around Halloween and family functions and gatherings, how do we continue to practice those? It's tough. It's tough to change human behavior. Maddie Figueroa has been with us, Director of Education at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, getting a report on how the schools have been coping uh, with COVID-19 since starting up. Manny, great work. Keep up uh, the good work. And again, pass on to all the staff that uh, kudos to everybody for uh, keeping our kids safe. Thank you, Manny. Thank you, Scott. Let's bring in Dr. Zane Chagalin, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases, Department of Medicine, McMaster University, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well, doctor. Thank you. So how has our, or how have our opinions changed regarding a vaccine since the beginning of this pandemic? Are, are things different now? I mean, I, I think uh, everyone is very hopeful that a vaccine is coming, and 
uh, I think, uh, you know, I, the general population, I think, hopes that this is kind of the big step moving forward to get back to some semblance of normal. But I can understand where where some of the attitudes towards the vaccination has changed. I mean, I think you had many populations that were already fed up with what was going on. Uh, and then saying to them that uh, you now, now once this vaccine is available, you must take it as part of your duty to, to protect society. Um, you know, the, it's not a secret that we've had people that didn't like that getting vaccinated in the past. And I think, you know, given the, the political nature of COVID-19, it's probably not helping now either. Uh, we're seeing uh, percentage uh, drops of about 18 points from uh, earlier on in the pandemic to uh, now. Obviously, when we didn't know what was going on, uh, a lot of people or, or more people said that it should be va- uh, mandatory. Now, as we get actually closer to the release, we're still thinking next year, mid, mid-year, before it's in everybody's arm and such. Uh, but now that one is becoming more available uh, and we're getting closer to the point where we have to roll up our sleeves, is that why? opinion is changing why do you think the the change especially as you see uh cases start to spike up and perhaps that will change again yeah i mean i, I think it's it's partly again just just the fatigue with everything and then you know people getting sick of being told what to do um and uh and again it probably it, there is a little bit that's been released in the last couple of months about some some of the issues in the clinical trials where they've been, you know, normal safety events that have been uh, looked at, but kind of re-triggered people to think, oh, maybe this isn't the complete safest product. Um, I think a combination of the two are probably weighing on this, but, you know, it is, again, asking if it's mandatory. Again, I think most people would still consider taking it if it was not mandatory, like we're seeing with the almost incredible demands for the flu shot. So I wouldn't hopefully be worrying too much about it in that sense. I think most people will still line up. So being Canadians, we certainly don't want to push our feelings onto everybody else and make it mandatory, but still 60% say they're going to get it, which yeah. is positive. Yeah, I mean, I, at least, again, I, I think it's a, it's a good reminder for us in public health in, in terms of the vaccine campaigns and public messaging is that you do need the public's buy-in for this intervention. I think we're all in a race to get the vaccine out there but again, without that public buy-in for getting the vaccine, it's uh, it's going to be a problem if you can only vaccinate 30 to 60 percent of the population, and there's 40 percent that refuse or are um, are kind of drag kicking and screaming to do it. Um, you know, it, it is we have time now to at least put out messaging, get get notification out there, and really try to be thoughtful to people on the other side and understand why they're they're rejecting uh, vaccination. And it'll be fascinating to see in the next couple of months how that changes, especially if the second wave continues. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if we see more death and, and, and more calamity and, and more of those, those uh, you know, March situations where, where things were quite pressured, uh, there's more of these stories that get out there. Or people have more personal experiences with the, the, the devastation from this, vac- this uh, virus. Um, yeah, you may see much more buy-in for sure. I think, you know, people are... Uh, not remembering what happened in the beginning, rightfully so, it was nine months ago. But uh, certainly, I, I think uh, you know that that fear uh, bought into people wanting to get vaccinated sooner rather than later. So you're right. I think if things get worse, uh, you're going to get people vaccinated. More, are going to be people more wanting to get vaccinated. 
Dr. Zane Chagall has been with us, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital, as well as Department of Medicine, McMaster University. Doctor, thanks for the time as always. Be well. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, lots of studies coming out today in regard to uh, mental health, uh, whether this is uh, how we're feeling about it, how it's affecting us at work, how the students are feeling and, and such. Uh, and, and a lot of this after, uh, hard to believe our last guest said, um, eight months, nine months we're now into this. Uh, and obviously, the long-term effects are becoming uh, more apparent. A new study from the Angus Reid Institute has shed some light on the shift in social behaviors and the impact it has had on Canadians, and a sharp increase in the mental health challenges. We're hearing more and more about this. Let's bring in Dave Krasinski, Research Director at Angus Reid, and is with us now. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, Dave. Uh, thanks for your time. Much appreciated. We seem to be getting a lot of this lately, uh, less and less about perhaps economic recovery and actually the second wave, but more uh, in regard to mental illness, mental health. Uh, are you surprised the attention that has been focused on this in the last several weeks, last few weeks, I guess? No, I think that this um, this is kind of a, a natural progression because it's been so long and Everybody is, you know, we, we started seeing fatigue about uh, the kind of COVID lockdowns in April and May. And now here we are halfway through October um, after what are, you know, for a lot of people, very quiet Thanksgiving celebrations. Uh, I know personally my traditional Thanksgiving was canceled this year just because people um, who are at risk at home uh, didn't feel comfortable getting into a room. Uh, with a bunch of people. So I think everybody is feeling this in certain ways. And we had this study that we did as a big study in May of last year, where we wanted to look at social isolation and loneliness and just get a baseline of what these issues look like in Canada. Um, so when the pandemic started uh, to, to kind of be extended month after month, I thought, you know, we should we should look at this and see how much it's changed and what sort of behavioral changes we have. And the biggest thing, like you mentioned, is that um, the percentage of people who say that their mental health was good last year was about uh, 67%. It's down to just 53% now. Um, and a lot of that is just because people are not able to do a lot of the activities that they're accustomed to over the years. And uh, that lack of community connection really seems to have uh, be, be affecting people negatively um, now that we're more than half of a year into this. You know, it seems for the longest time nobody ever talked about mental health. It was something that was always kind of hidden, kept behind closed doors. And obviously in the last few years, we've seen that turn around. Are you surprised so many people are being open and honest and we're even having these discussions? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's a really, there's a very strong generational tilt to this data too. So, you know, as as we are certainly talking about it more, um, it, it does appear that um, older Canadians are either uh, dealing with this better or perhaps, as you mentioned, not really as willing to talk about it or to admit it. If, if you look at the percentage of, for example, men over 55, just 5% of them say that they think that their mental health these days is, is poor or very poor. It's just 9% among women uh, 55 plus. When you get to 
women under that age, though, in the, the 35 to 54 category and those 18 to 34-year-old young women, it's about three times as high, the number who say that they have poor mental health. Um, for for men under the age of 55, it's, it's more than four times as high compared to those over 55. So it really is people under that age group who are either suffering more or are more willing to... Um, be open about it so it's hard to kind of gauge that without being able to follow up and talk to people but it is interesting that such a large proportion of people are willing to come out and say that they're having a tough time and that this has been an area where they're dealing with kind of uh, down feelings depression and that's completely understandable Uh, I think there's probably a lot of listeners where that really resonates um, because it has been a very challenging time, and, and it goes along with those economic issues um, and the, just feelings of isolation that, that people are, are having a tough time balancing it right now. You bring up an interesting point too, Dave. Uh, Dave Krasinski is with us from Angus Reid, in the sense that uh, they're not—it's not showing up as more, or they're not talking about it as much, or certainly the results in your survey as much with the older generation as they are with the younger. It'd be interesting to know if that is because, as you were saying or alluded to that people in the younger generations are more apt to talk about it and communicate those feelings, whereas in the older they may not. Or, as we've talked about before, this is sort of, well, it is the first crisis of a very, of a very privileged generation, including those of us in our 50s and maybe even 60s. Uh, those above perhaps have, have World War II experience or stories or such uh, to tell everybody. And could it be perhaps the older generation has just been around more, have experienced more trials and tribulations in their life, and are just, you know, this too will pass. Yeah, there certainly could be some perspective to it and the fact that um, those older generations, maybe people are a little bit uh, just more comfortable with where their lives are at right now, whereas younger people might be trying to maintain a job or uh, the job losses are are quite a bit higher for people who are in that 18 to 34 kind of precarious work situation. Um, But one of the interesting data points, too, is that... uh, when you ask people if they wish they had more time alone or less time alone, um, older people, 55 plus, are actually quite a bit more likely to say that they would rather have less time alone. So they are quite lonely. 33% say that. It was just 18% last year. So that's Mm. almost doubled over the course of the last year. So it's not that they're not dealing with challenges as well. They just might not be categorizing it the same way, I think. So uh, how much of this do you think is as a result of the second wave? When we were coming out of the summer, numbers were going down in August. Uh, it, it looked like, uh, you know, it looked like there was uh, sunshine at the end of all of this. And then all of a sudden the second wave hit and we started seeing numbers tick up and, and more restrictions uh, come into play, although not certainly a total lockdown. But it seemed that that kind of take the, uh, took the wind out of a lot of people's sails. Yeah, and we, uh, we've been tracking that, um, just that sentiment that, you know, people looking at this and thinking the worst is over, we're, we're on the kind of the free and clear now. And the concern levels really had dropped between April and June. Um, from a high point, of, you had about three quarters of Canadians who were worried about getting sick, and that dropped to below half in the middle of June um, as we were kind of bottoming out with our daily caseload. Um, as it has ticked back up, concern levels have ticked back up and are right at 69% now, almost back to the highest we've been. Um, and that was two weeks ago, so the, the, it probably is right up, up about the highest it's been. Um, and alongside that comes uh, 
you know, two-thirds of people saying that they think that there's going to be worse health impacts to come over the course of the winter, and three-quarters saying that they think that the economic damage is, is going to get worse um, as they see the, the fact that we aren't opening up uh, more. We're, we're at this point trying to just kind of tread water and maintain um, the kind of business uh, that we have going now rather than really continuing to try to open everything up. So I think people are perceiving really economic challenges and the health risks uh, as we deal with rising caseloads. So I think you're probably onto something there. Um, the isolation is getting to people and the fact that it doesn't look like it's going anywhere, at least for you know conservative estimates the next six months uh, and probably longer. Uh, what about the family? Because obviously lots of families uh, are now stuck in the same house. Um, spouses, same sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I've heard that you know if there were issues, those issues could be amplified. If not, things could get better. What is what is it? What are the studies showing in regard to the family? Yeah, things are looking pretty good. I mean, the the number of people who say that their uh, their spousal relationship is holding up, um, it's it's faltered a little bit. So the percentage saying that it's very good is down about six points. Um, the percentage saying that it's only fair or poor is up a couple of points, but really not anything that is uh, really troubling. So that's a handful of, of couples um, kind of uh, in the sample who are having a difficult time. The same is, is kind of noted for immediate family relationships. People are holding up okay. They're a little more likely to say that those are only fair. About one in five say that uh, their immediate family relationships are a little bit strained. Uh, the biggest thing that we found across the board is that social lives have really suffered and that's not surprising because we've been uh, basically uh, kind of quarantined at various periods and told to reduce uh, social circle sizes. Um, so the percentage of people who say that they had a very good um, social life has dropped from about 55% last year down to about 33%. So mm. people, I think that's where you see a lot of kind of the loneliness and isolation creeping in is the fact that a, re- a huge portion of Canadians look at their social life and are just really kind of bummed out right now. I think. It's fascinating to see how these opinions have changed since back in March when all this started. I, I remember the kids were out of school on March break and all of a sudden, boom, 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 things started to shut down. And many thought, ah, it's going to be a couple of weeks, you know, maybe a month, things will turn around. Mm-hmm. And then we got locked down and, and we all know what happened. But it's interesting to see how perceptions and, and, and how we have changed as a society from the first month to, say, the third, then maybe the sixth. It's interesting as we adapt and realize that this isn't temporary, that this, there could be some permanent change here. We have to look at the long game here, not the sprint. It's interesting to see how those opinions have changed. Yeah, I think a lot of people have, have looked at this and seen that it's much more long-term. It's really interesting going back and looking at March and April when we ask people how long they think this is going to last um, you know, not knowing ourselves as researchers how long it's going to last. But, you know, you had a, a pretty strong majority saying it would be a couple of months. And then by the time June and July hits, you've got, you know, 70% of people saying that they think it's going to be another year or longer. And now people are not even sure that by the end of 2021, we're going to be back to normal. And I think there's there's an argument that, that, that normal isn't coming back. Um, you know, we were, as a society, kind of trending towards some of these these paradigm shifts, um, things like working from home and using technology to connect more, um, and those have really been hastened by the, by the pandemic and the fact that we've had to rely on those things. 
if you look at just as kind of a simple uh, data analogy, the um, the percentage of people over 55 who are using Zoom and other video calling apps um, is basically doubled since last year. About mm. you know 25 percent up to almost half who are using it regularly now, and they're doing it to keep in touch with people. Some some have met grandchildren for the first time uh, over Zoom or over FaceTime, mm. um, and it's. You know, it, it might have been where we were heading uh, over a long time horizon, and that's been shortened, I think. And some people are really, you know, anxious to get back to normal, and other people are embracing it and just trying to, to roll with the punches. Um, so I think it's it's a very difficult time um, to kind of sort all of this out, and it's something where I think having large amounts of data to just see what people are thinking about and how they're coping with it can be helpful um, just to to check in on Canadians and see how they're coping with it. It's going to be fascinating to compare all of this research, maybe two years from now, three years from now, five years from now, to, to see where our headspace was during this pandemic and how it has actually changed things as a result of it. Yeah, and, and you know, once people have a little bit of time and we're a couple years down the road, are they... Do they think it's better or worse, or is it just kind of uh, it is what it is, which is a lot of what we're hearing right now. People aren't uh, aren't exactly ecstatic about how things are going, but they're just doing their best. Um, I think it, it will be interesting to see what these feelings of, of loneliness and isolation look like over time, because when we looked at it last year, we were very surprised that um, a lot of Canadians, just based on the fact that we tend to kind of... Uh, we, we don't engage in our communities a ton. So a lot of Canadians are, are very isolated just at the best of times in typical years. And that has increased uh, immensely this year. So we'll see, you know, will it go back and will we find other ways to make uh, meaningful connections and, and, and find community um, in a situation where we're not allowed to be close to each other for long periods of time. Uh, so that's what I'm really looking forward to is just tracking uh these sentiments over the course of the next couple of years and, and uh, sharing them with all of you guys. It's fascinating because, you know, and we, we talked at length on this show prior to COVID-19 about how the world had become such a divisive place. Politics was incredibly polarizing. We were seeing it everywhere, in, including in North America. Do you think COVID-19 will unite us, will bring us closer together as our worlds have been forced to, to be smaller we, 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 we realize what's important, what isn't important, uh, what we've done that, that was time well spent, what wasn't. Um, do, do you think this will unite us, bring us closer together in the end? Well, or by I mean, the time it's hope. over, we'll just be back to the way we were and we don't give a damn? Yeah, I was going to say, we could hope so, but I think the way that some of these things trend, you know, we had, um, for example, the, the easiest way to kind of compare the, the contentious views of people is usually to look at political affiliation. And uh, we really did have a kind of a, a unifying of, of people all across the spectrum um, in terms of things like government response and, and what they were seeing as we were dealing with the early days of the pandemic. But even that has kind of dissipated and conservatives have started to become more critical of people like uh, uh, Chief Public Health Minister uh, or Theresa Tam, mm-hmm. um, Justin Trudeau, other federal members who... Early on, people were, were quite supportive of and said that they were doing a good job, but those, those have kind of gone away. Um, and I think <laughs> as soon as we end up getting into a, another federal election campaign, whether that's uh, 
next year or, or sometime in the near future. I think we're probably going to see a lot of the same partisanship. And for for a lot of people, particularly in Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, people that kind of lean toward that conservative uh, ideology, um, there really is a sense that this the whole COVID situation isn't as serious as a lot of people think that it is. Those numbers are still quite high among uh, people who lean conservative. So there is a lot of disagreement still, and uh, I'm not quite sure that we're going to get past it. I, I think uh, it might take, you know, an, another emergency level kind of lockdown situation for to get people on the same page again, because that, that really appears to be the only time when everybody comes together. And hmm. now that we've had eight months and we've seen a lot of separation again. Dave Krasinski has been with us, Research Director, Angus Reid Institute, uh, keeping tabs on the minds of Canadians as we go in and out a first wave and into a second of COVID-19. Dave, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you too. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Lots to talk about both on this side of the border and on the other. Uh, before we bring in, uh, before we bring in Michael, let's play the clip of David Sweet that uh, we had from yesterday. MP David Sweet for Flamborough Glanbrook has now been appointed uh, chair of the Ethics Committee uh, in Ottawa, and we were asking him his thoughts on the WE investigation and those investigations starting up again. I think everybody wants to know what was going to happen with hundreds of millions of dollars that was going to go to this uh, Canadian student initiative that um, that opposition MPs were saying, you know, if you have this, this money, we need more money in the regular uh, in the regular student uh, initiative that happens every year where employers get some of their uh, some of the students income uh, reimbursed by the government so that they can give them experience uh, so it usually benefits many many charities and uh, many businesses as well as gives students very valuable experience through the Canada summer jobs program but they wanted to create this new initiative single sourced it wasn't even put out there uh, in a competitive tender and so I think all Canadians want to know where hundreds of millions of dollars were going to go and also uh, where other people benefited by steering that contract to one specific entity. Michael Tobe is with us, Troy Media Syndicative columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Hope you are, too. Uh, the Conservatives uh, trying, obviously, to get these uh, WE investigations back on track. Some still are. Some uh, were sidelined by all of this. They're also trying to come up with a couple of, uh, of different ones as well. Um, the Prime Minister has reacted to this by saying, we don't have time for this anymore. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, but, of course, the Prime Minister didn't feel that way back in the summer when he prorogued government for six weeks to uh, work on a throne speech and then an election platform for hopefully a majority government. So uh, at the end of the day, can he use that excuse now? Well, I'm glad he's hit this realization seven to eight months into the process, but uh, no, no, he can't. I mean, obviously, yes, we are in the midst of a global pandemic. We know that. We know that COVID-19 has affected our communities, our cities, our neighborhoods, our friends, our family, etc. We're all aware of this. And yes, obviously, the federal government, like any government around the world, has to deal with this. And this has to be the main focus more than anything else. There are obviously other issues that are pertinent and will be discussed on this station and elsewhere. But 
COVID-19 obviously takes precedence over everything else. But no, unfortunately, as much as Justin Trudeau would like to wave his magic hands, as he seems to enjoy doing, and just, you know, everything will suddenly resolve itself or heal itself or disappear, this doesn't work like this. And I know that obviously the Liberals in recent weeks have tried to shut down, along with the help of the NDP, just basically shut down certain aspects of the We Charity controversy from being investigated. Now, you know, David Sweet, who's one of your local MPs, who's a conservative, he's quite right that obviously Canadians want to know where these hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, well over 700 million, in fact, how they were going to be used, were they properly used, was everything properly vetted, and are there more aspects to this controversy that exist? And if there are further tentacles, well, then you have to discover them. And while I can understand why Justin Trudeau and the Liberals would prefer to not discuss this issue, I think most people would, and I know why they would like to shut down any further discussion on it, uh, they can't. And to basically state that, well, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, we can't pay attention to this, or we can't be bothered to investigate it. No, it goes side and side. A controversy may not take precedence over a global health pandemic, but it is still important because this is the government that manages our day-to-day politics, our day-to-day economic uh, principles, uh, the way we operate on a day-to-day basis in general. So yes, it is is important, it's crucial, and no, you can't shut it down. As much as they're trying to close it down in Ottawa, there are lots of other avenues that are available to Mr. Sweet and other people, which includes the media, it includes, um, you know, they can go through their ridings and discuss it if they wish. They can discuss it with the residents of their areas. There's lots of things they can still do. But no, We Charity is not going to go away anytime soon. It's a scandal. It's a huge scandal. I know some people are trying to diminish it, but quite frankly, you can't because there's just so much to it. And we've seen it over the past few months. Obviously, this was done way back when to change the, the channel. Prorogation was there to change the channel. The Prime Minister said no, it was to find a new vision for Canada. And we were all very uh, cons- very, uh, um, uh, very much looking forward to what this new throne speech was going to be and this, this new we vision were. for Canada, so to speak. And we basically got just a regurgitated version of what we were dealing with uh, during a pandemic. So is this, did this change? the channel for Canadians, or are they still interested in this, uh, as you said, but we'll deal with it after a pandemic? Yeah, I guess I was in the minority. I wasn't looking forward to the throne speech, Scott, because I presumed what it was going to be, and it was it was actually worse than I thought. I'm strictly looking at it from a media perspective, thinking, oh, there's going to be something really exciting in here to talk about, but, you know, either for one side or the other, but clearly that didn't happen. Well, since parts of the media are in the tank for the federal government, yes, I guess so, but... <laughs> But putting that aside, um, look, you know, in the end, ultimately, Justin Trudeau obviously has certain goals and plans in mind. The throw speech outlined them, and he's going to proceed with them because the NDP has decided to back the throne speech, which means that ultimately it will be part of a budget. We don't know still to, to what extent it's going to be and how much it's going to cost us. Uh, that number still hasn't been floated around. Hopefully one of these days it will. As you probably know, and maybe you alluded to in your radio show at some point, Christia Freeland, the, the finance minister, was actually stating, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, that they don't actually have to reveal that number. Oh, really? It's our taxpayer dollars. Yes, you do. And who in God's name, no matter which party has governed this country, be it the old progressive conservatives, 
the current conservative government, conservative party, or the liberal party, which is currently in government, everyone's always outlined exactly what's in a budget and how much it's going to cost, roughly, or at least based on estimates, you know, through a fiscal year. Understanding that, you know, as, as things move forward, it, the numbers can change a little bit. We get that, but no, I mean, you know, I know that obviously the liberals are trying to use everything else as a bit of a distraction. And certainly, again, not to be a broken record, COVID-19 is extremely important and that must take precedence over everything else. But no, you just can't make the We Charity scandal disappear, much like you can't make any controversy that this government has experienced disappear, you know, from, you know, from things that have happened in the past. In the end, ultimately, Justin Trudeau is the leader of this country and he is accountable for all things that are good and all things that are bad. I remember talking to one poli-sci expert uh, back in the summer, late summer, and he suggested that Trudeau should not have prorogue government, but just simply dealt with this, got it over with, and then by the fall, when everybody's paying attention and back from summer, this would all have been behind us. Do you think it was a mistake for him to prorogue government and, and, and push this off, hoping it would disappear, and then have it uh, you know, rear its ugly head in the fall as opposed to dealing with it in the summer? Well, look, by nature, and maybe you agree with me, I don't like proroguing Parliament. It's yeah. just not something I favor. It's, it's, it's a legal tactic. It's constitutionally mandated. Governments can do it. We've seen it with my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, who did in 2008, and now we've seen it with Justin Trudeau in 2020. I guess the one and only good thing is that neither party can now basically attack proroguing Parliament because they've at least had one leader or prime minister who has done it. So now everyone's basically... You know, it's all awash and we're all on equal footing. But, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know who the expert was that suggested that to you, but I don't think that's illogical. It would have been wiser for Justin Trudeau not to parole Parliament, which no matter how you sell it and no matter how you slice it, looks like the leader is trying to avoid a problem or shut down discussion on a particular issue or controversy that's causing a bit of a headache. So, yes, I think it would have been better to deal with it head on. I agree, Scott. But on the other hand, he chose not to. And regrettably, as I said, this is a legal means that any government can use to stop debate of a, of a parliamentary session. So unless we do away with that rule, governments can use it going forward. And frankly, I believe that others will. What we've seen with Harper and Trudeau, each one was different. Each instance was different. Uh, different. There were pros and cons of doing both of them. But no, I think Trudeau made a huge mistake in doing so. And it wouldn't shock me if down the road either he or his successor, if there is one, does the same thing for whatever matter or whatever issue they're dealing with. All right, let's head south of the border. Obviously, we sure. know what's happening there. Donald Trump, uh, now it appears uh, out from his COVID-19 scare, uh, testing yep. negative, uh, apparently not contagious and been cleared to do rallies and such. But right. there is no presidential, second presidential debate, which I guess was scheduled for tomorrow. Right. Uh, considering he has tested negative and so on and so forth, are you surprised this debate is not happening? No, we've talked about this, and no, I'm, I'm not, because obviously it was up to the debate commission to make that rule. It's not up to the candidates who participate. It's up to the commission to set the standards. And they chose to because at the time that they opted to switch it from what would be an in-person presidential debate, which is what we're used to, to a virtual presidential debate, uh, D Donald Trump was not out of the woods yet, as, as the line that we heard often from both Walter Reed Hospital and his own physician said, 
And they just felt as a health concern that it was best to do it virtually. Donald Trump decided not to. That's fine. So then in the end, what happened was, as you've probably seen, and I'm sure this is where you're getting to, ABC News decided to make a deal with Joe Biden, who obviously was, you know, had not tested positive for COVID-19. He's never tested positive for it at all. He was ready to go, so they set up a town hall with him. Now it was announced today that Donald Trump has arranged a deal with NBC, which mm-hmm. interestingly was the home of his old show, The Apprentice, and now he's going to have his own town hall debate. <laughs> Both of them are going to happen at 8 o'clock on Thursday, so it will be competing town hall debates. It, it's really one for the history books, if nothing else. This is just absolutely bizarre, because obviously people are going to have to somehow divide themselves between one or the other, or just probably go to the one that they're, they're favoring. Yeah. That being said, why didn't the commission change this if he's out and about? I mean, couldn't they flip this around in a relatively short period of time and say, well, okay, we can do it live. Uh, he's out and about now. Well, that's an interesting question, and I don't know the rules. But as I understand it, when the debate commission changes the, the situation behind a particular debate and says that you know either it's going to have more than two candidates, it's going to have three candidates, or it's not going to be in person, it's going to be virtual, and one of the candidates or more says, no, I'm not interested, or I'm not going to do it, or I'm busy, I'm unable to, whatever the reason may be, once that standard is set or once that decision is made, I don't think they can renege upon it and then come back and revisit the entire thing. I think right. it's all or nothing, as I understand it. Now, I may be wrong about this because, quite frankly, in history, there are very, very few instances of a presidential candidate or a sitting president dropping out of a debate since they started doing them with the 1960 debate between JFK and Richard Nixon. One rare example, and I think you and I talked about it, was actually Jimmy Carter in 1980 who actually stepped out of the first presidential debate because it was going to be a three-way debate between him, Ronald Reagan, and the independent candidate, John Anderson. And the Carter camp basically just felt with three people there, they would get less speaking time, less ability to put their message out in front, so they just dropped out of it. Carter did obviously enter the second presidential debate, and interestingly, Anderson, the independent, was not invited to that after a very poor performance against Ronald Reagan. In this case... Because Donald Trump has already said no and said it pretty emphatically, I guess that the debate commission basically decided not to bother to hold the debate. They officially canceled it a few days ago. Joe Biden had already made an arrangement at that point with ABC, so he wasn't obviously going to break it. So I guess there just couldn't be a debate at all. But it gave Donald Trump and his team a very small window, a narrow one, to actually set up his own town hall. And you're right, it is completely bizarre. It's something that we'll be talking about long after we've both left and all the listeners have left this mortal coil because I don't think we're ever going to see anything quite like this again, no matter who the candidates are and no matter what situation we're facing. So, yeah, it's, it, I don't, that's the reason why I don't think they could go back. But you're right. It's, it's crazy how, how it's all developing. So advantage, disadvantage to which candidate not having the debate? Is it, is it, a, is it a wash here or does it affect one more than the other? Well, that's actually a very good question, and I guess it'll all be determined once the two town halls are held and what people feel happened and whether there was good interplay with the, with the people who are asking questions, whether the candidates held themselves professionally, gave good answers, etc. Who does it help? Who does it hinder? Well, the debate, uh, the debate process always benefits Donald Trump because even if you don't like the way he handles things and you don't like his language, his constant interrupting and all that, 
it's something that he can, can control the narrative and he can gear a question very easily and very readily in his general direction or to his comfort level. Now, in fairness, Joe Biden was no better during the first presidential debate and tried to do the same thing, not to the same extent, but in the same manner. Uh, but overall, a debate benefits Trump the most. However, with these two competing town halls, there is a real chance here for both Joe Biden or Donald Trump to gain an advantage over one another, depending on what the viewing numbers are. If more viewers turn in, say, to Donald Trump than Joe Biden, Trump can claim victory, saying, look, it doesn't matter how often Joe Biden goes out to these small crowds or in front of automobiles, as you probably saw that little clip that's been circulating recently, yeah. where it's mostly just you know inanimate objects around him that seem to outnumber the live individuals who are there and cheering him on, <laughs> Joe Biden. Um, I think that Donald Trump could claim victory if he gets higher viewing numbers. Conversely, if Joe Biden gets higher viewing numbers, he can then point to the fact that, look, I'm way ahead in the popular vote, even though it doesn't mean a lot. I'm ahead in the Electoral College, which is the all-important factor, and this shows it because my viewing numbers were higher than the sitting president's viewing numbers. So the advantage is, remains to be determined, but certainly I think Donald Trump would have performed better or had a better chance to really gain some support and some numbers if he had faced off against Joe Biden. But there is a third presidential debate scheduled for October 22nd, so my guess is that will go on. That was my next question to you, Michael. What happens for the third debate? Uh, and it, it's not that far away. So uh, will the commission reexamine the protocol and, and, and open things up or to try to keep both candidates happy? Will we see a third debate? I think we will see a third debate. I think that the commission will probably, I'm not saying that they won't do nothing. They'll obviously do certain things to adjust the format, mainly because the first presidential debate was such a free-for-all and such a gong show. They don't want to have that repeated again. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the question is, how far do you go? So I believe it will happen. I don't see any reason why not. It's only eight days from now. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, obviously, some people would prefer that the moderator stepped in more often and had a, a silencer or a button that they could press if people are interrupting one another to stop the certain flow of the debate or the nasty comments, terrible words, etc., that both Trump and Biden engaged in on, in the first presidential debate. The problem is that ruins the ebbs and flows of any debate whatsoever, not the best strategy to go on. Or you need to have a stronger moderator or several moderators, if they wish, who are going to take, shall we say, a law and order type strategy. Yeah, really. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know how they'll do that exactly, because these are two very strong personalities, that being Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And they're not going to necessarily listen to anyone because this just isn't their style in either case. And yes, I know that Joe Biden is obviously easier to take than Donald Trump, but they both strategically try to do the same thing where it's about them, about their ideas, about the, their presence in the world, about their political experience or things that they've accomplished in politics, and they try to make it me, me, me more than anything else, more than most candidates we've seen historically. So I think that the, the, the Bay Commission will obviously allow it through. They'll make some adjustments. They'll try to ensure that the two candidates listen to the moderators more often but quite frankly, Scott, I don't think it's going to be much different than the first presidential debate based on the two participants. 
It's going to be fascinating. Perhaps rather than uh, several moderators, maybe just a security detail would be needed at this point. Uh, Michael Tobis with his Trey Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Can I shut up? Can I hang up the phone now? Go for it, Scott. Where was this at noon? All right. I'll hang up. Uh, thanks for uh, staying with us. Appreciate it. Obviously, some technical difficulties in and around the power outage that was in Hamilton uh, kept us on the phone and not on the tie line, which you're hearing uh, me on now. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.